You're listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast. Hi, I'm David Manti, and welcome to a new episode of the Today in Manufacturing podcast. With me this week are Jeff Ranke and Anna Wells. We're the editors of Manufacturing.net and Industrial Equipment News, and we each have more than 15 years' experience covering the manufacturing industry. Every week, we cover the five biggest stories in the industry and discuss the implications they have moving forward. Please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You could also help us out a lot by giving the podcast a positive review on whatever platform you use. Finally, if you want to email the podcast, you can reach any of us at Jeff, Anna, or David at IN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. Uh, Anna, we're not live this week. We are not, and I am fine, and that's all I'm bringing to the table today. (laughs) Nothing else to say. No inside jokes here. No inside jokes here, and as to whether or not we could curse more just because we know that they'll get it in post. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, we are live almost every other Friday, <laughs> though we won't be next Friday. <laughs> however, the following Friday, we'll be live at one thirty. Try to keep wanna, up with that, yeah. If you want to join us on YouTube, we'll keep you uh, you know, up to date on that. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> Before we get started, we have a word from our sponsor. Oil Eater's household cleaners, industrial cleaners, and industrial equipment are specifically designed to replace dangerous solvents and are used throughout the world. Our safe water-based formula dissolves grease and grime for almost any surface and leaves a fresh, non-chemical scent. Our ultra-concentrated formulas are perfect for light, medium, or heavy cleaning and can be used on shop floors, in parts washers, to clean equipment, and more. VOC compliant, Oil Eater will do an excellent job in a multitude of applications, safely and cost-effectively, while reducing your chemical usage. Safe for the user, safe for the surfaces being cleaned, and safe for the environment. For more information, visit oileater.com or call 800-528-0334. All right, and we're back. Before we get to top stories, I got to apologize to you guys. I just got back from a week on the road in Anaheim, and I'm a little squirrely today. No way. Yeah. Really? I mean, more so than normal. So <laughs> A lot of rust. So watch out. We're kicking it off of every corner here. Uh, You're going to come in hot and just fade? <laughs> oh, I, <laughs> By the time we get to closing thoughts, David's going to be on one knee. That was the story <laughs> of this morning. You know, it's just uh, came in like, how is everybody doing? Good. <laughs> Let's all catch up. Sat down. Could have just fallen asleep right there. <laughs> all right. Our top story this week. And by top story, I mean our first story this week, more rust getting kicked off. There we go. Super heavy EVs pose traffic accident risks. Traffic fatalities are on the rise and new super heavy electric vehicles could make things even worse. Auto industry experts are concerned that new electric trucks and SUVs are so heavy that they could make auto accidents even more dangerous than normal. For example, the 2022 GMC Hummer EV weighs 9,000 pounds with a 1,000-horsepower motor. The old H2 weighed about 6,400 pounds. The Hummer Hummer EV is at the top end of the super-heavy electric vehicle, but many EVs eclipse 5,000 pounds, like the Audi e-tron, Lucid Air, and Cadillac Lyric. According to Consumer Reports, Some of these vehicles need more than 160 feet to fully stop when traveling at 70 miles per hour. And the average is around 120, tops out at 140 feet. So keep your distance out there. Yeah, for sure. Um, It's it's crazy the you know how heavy these vehicles are getting, but it's not exactly an issue that's exclusive to EVs. Um, I think it it could get worse with EVs, right? But it's already something that's happening in the U.S. market. Um, we've transitioned a lot 
from smaller passenger vehicles to SUVs and trucks. Um, just in my lifetime, if you look at the change in the average vehicle weight, it it came in a little over 3,000 pounds in the early 80s, and now it's above 4,000 pounds. Mm-hmm. An existing pickup truck can already weigh five, 6,000 pounds, right? So that's already deadly at high speeds. Um, you, you know, get all that gear in there. Then you got all the gear, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and if you want to talk about weight too, like um, – Delivery trucks, like delivery trucks are very heavy, even not just like tractor trailer trucks, but like the average FedEx truck, I think weighs like five, six tons. Um, And think about how many more of those are on the road right now with this explosive e-commerce and stuff. So we're, we're already there. You know what I mean? This is already a problem. And there's an unfortunate imbalance, I think, between people who are choosing to drive smaller, lighter vehicles. You know, they're not they're not as safe now on the road, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And the people in those bigger vehicles are actually safer because it's safer to be in a heavier vehicle in a crash. But the real loser in all of this, I think is clear. And that's the pedestrian who, I mean, for years now, they've been saying that it's your, your capability of surviving an impact from a vehicle is getting less and less Mm -hmm. um, as these vehicles get heavier. And so I hope that the automotive industry can continue to focus on technology that, enhances a driver's ability to see pedestrians, to stop effectively, to stop faster. Um, you know, alerts are becoming more and more common with systems that can even like apply the brakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they see um, human movement, I know Toyota has done a lot of work in that area. Yeah, I honestly think the focus does need to be on these preventive technologies because, you know, when we're talking about I know we're talking about a thousands of pounds increase. However, like these vehicles are already very deadly the way they are now. Mm -hmm. So no matter what, like trying to whittle off weight at this point, I just, I don't think that that's really going to move the needle on safety, Mm -hmm. but what will move the needle on safety potentially is trying to advance some of these technologies that identify hazards, um, Mm -hmm. you know, help you see kind of like crash avoidance type systems, pedestrian safety systems. Um, and uh, I think that's that's where we need to be focusing our attention, in my opinion. No, I completely agree that technology should be the focus. Uh, and Jeff, I think that was a big part. That's been kind of in the conversation ever since a couple of years ago when uh, the, uh, I think it was an Uber driver in a semi-autonomous vehicle hit a pedestrian. You know, we have a lot of this technology pushing things forward and it's not quite there yet. But I think combining the weight uh, making vehicles a little bit more dangerous on the road, there are at least some exciting new technologies out there that could stand to make them a lot safer. I think that's all crap. I totally disagree with both of you. Really? No. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's good. Whenever we have these types of I'm transits. I'm the squirrely one, Jeff. No. <laughs> well, I mean, some of this is is kind of straightforward. Yeah. I, yeah. I agree 100%. Mm. I mean, and this is – as we've as vehicles have transitioned and taken on different shapes and forms, this has always been a concern. It always should be. Mm-hmm. So, even though it sounds like an obvious one, this is definitely a conversation worth having. Yeah, okay? don't want to downplay any of the safety stuff here as well, because you know Anna was talking about how as consumer trends have changed, vehicles have gotten heavier because we're going to SUVs and pickups. But I mean, when you come out of an era like the late 60s, early 70s, where we were talking about muscle cars and big vehicles, Mm -hmm. and we transitioned to more fuel-efficient vehicles that were smaller, Mm -hmm. and we hadn't perfected a lot of that like roll cage safety type stuff yet, there was equal concern there as well. Mm -hmm. Well, we didn't see a spike in passenger deaths um, or anything like that. So 
it's good to have these conversations, but I think where it starts is in addition to a lot of those embedded systems that can identify drivers using sensing technology to make sure we don't get into those bad accidents, it's also putting the driver in a situation where they're trained to make better decisions, mm-hmm. okay? Maybe as opposed to my daughter's learning to drive in a four-door sedan that weighs about 1,800 pounds, if they're going to be driving an SUV or a bigger vehicle every day, maybe that's what they should be learning in. So they mm-hmm. have an understanding on how those stopping distances are different. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's also something to be said for a lot of the infotainment devices that oh. companies are embedding within the vehicles for sure. that yeah. lead to a lot of distracted driving. Yeah. Now, yeah. I'm a little hypocritical there because I love having Bluetooth and all that other good stuff to make mm-hmm. my commute a little bit more enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But if that's also serving as a distraction, and we've got these other concerns coming in with these EVs weighing more, I mean, we've talked about this a ton. People suck at driving right now. Oh, yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. so there's other concerns there. So we don't, I don't want to downplay that. But one of the things that I thought about here, too, that was just kind of interesting is we're talking about EVs being heavier. Mm-hmm. So they need bigger battery packs with more energy yeah. or that require more energy to still hit those ranges that people want, those 300 plus ranges. Well, that means they're going to be plugged in for longer. Mm-hmm. They're going to require more mm-hmm. energy, more electricity. And we still have 60% of our grid depending on fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. So it is interesting to see a product or a product category that really had its origins in trying to get away from fossil fuels and be better for the environment, sort of almost coming around in order to get people more interested in them. Mm -hmm. Putting out products that are actually going to consume more fossil fuels in the effort of getting that power up so they have the ranges and, and make everybody satisfied with them. So it's it's kind of a weird cyclical dynamic well, there that, that comes with some of these heavier EVs. And kind of talking about that transition period, it's going to be that way in the interim, but hopefully the reliance on fossil fuels switches more to renewable energy. So that way, you know, it's pulling uh, for, from a more renewable source, not just uh, traditional coal. Well, I hope some of these trends also, and we've talked about this a ton as well, gets us focused on fixing the grid so we can handle all these electric vehicles, yeah. especially if we're looking at more trucks and SUVs that require more power. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Got a lot of work to do. There is a lot of infrastructure that's got to go into this. Um, you know, I read about how like the transmission lines to rural areas like don't really exist. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be a big barrier. So Joe Biden's administration is pushing. They have a goal to hit 100 percent renewable energy in the U.S. power grid by 2035, which is very ambitious. Mm-hmm. Um, the reports I've seen suggest that maybe they will get, they could get to like two thirds, um, but which is still a tremendous yeah. um, it, it, advancement, can, you know, if you can yeah. do that. But but there is a lot to do. There's a lot of groundwork to lay there. I was surprised. We still have 20% of our grid coming from coal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, so to even get to two thirds, boy, that sounds... Impressive. Yeah, it would be. Yeah. <laughs> Can't imagine the first time the fleet of autonomous electric vehicles is shipped. They're plugged in and just the entire grid goes down. <laughs> well, if we get to some of those numbers where they want to be, where, where they want the certain percentage of vehicles on the road to be EVs. Mm-hmm. And when you wait, see the way the OEs are shifting, mm-hmm. where their offerings are going to be primarily electric vehicles. Yeah, we got some work to do. Uh, the other thing from a safety standpoint that I thought about is as people are demanding more performance, to your point, Jeff, bigger batteries still have a big problem with batteries and accidents and battery yeah. fires being quite dangerous, not just for the people inside the car, but also the emergency personnel. So I think there's a lot of work to be done there as well. Yeah. All right. Our next most popular story, the world's first marijuana breathalyzer nearly ready. 
Cannabis is now legal in some form in 37 states. As, restri- as restrictions ease, workplace drug testing is changing on a fundamental level. A recent report from Quest Diagnostics found that the manufacturing and logistics industries have seen steady increases in drug positivity rates every year since 2017. Still, some employers are dropping drug tests to try and attract new workers, but they have to balance worker safety with legal cannabis use. At the moment, the best answer seems to be the weed breathalyzer. It's called the Hound, and it's preparing to enter the market soon. The Hound uses single-use cartridges and provides a result in 20 minutes. A handheld device collects the sample, which is then plugged into a base station for analysis. Hound Labs, the company working on the Hound since 2014, is planning a soft launch in Q3 2022 and will be in the market by 2023 with an already long wait list. According to Nina French, president of Employer and Law Enforcement Solutions, the Hound can help every kind of employer, large and small, preserve talent. Employees want to consume cannabis and know that they won't be penalized, according to French anyways. No one wants to be fired, Jeff for something they did off the clock. Now, the important part <laughs> is that... Off the clock, it's huh? off the clock, and then it's out of their system by the time they're on the clock. I get the nature of what you're saying, so I'll just leave it at that. Because there are some things off the clock that you should definitely be fired for if you do it. But oh, maybe not this one. All right. <laughs> Agreed. So, Agreed. Would, so uh, <laughs> what I would say overall, like regardless... I personally... <laughs> You're just going through my hit list? We're not going to go there. All right. All right. Here's the top five. (laughs) (laughs) I only knew three. So this could be educational. No, agreed. Because, I mean, people are getting fired over tweets nowadays. So, yeah, that's a a whole other rabbit hole. There's a different breathalyzer you need for that. Um, Now, Um, specific to cannabis use in the workplace, it is evolving for employers, you know, trying to. Make it safe, but also abide by state law. Yeah. So first and foremost, doesn't matter what it is. If you're testing somebody for something, accuracy is always better. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the more accurate we can be on this stuff, the better. Now, I think it's interesting too. And, and I think you called out a lot of these stats, but THC, the, the chemical element in marijuana, dissipates after like one to three hours, something mm-hmm. like that. But it can remain in the bloodstream for like 67 days. Yeah. yeah. Now, your urine, yeah. Could you imagine if that was alcohol? Nobody would have a job. Ever. Nobody. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I like the fact that this is being more realistic and bringing this into a perspective where people can deal with it on a real level. Okay. Right. And identifying if there's a real problem or if somebody just had a good time mm-hmm. legally. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, also, I think this can help break down some of the stigma attached to some of these testing, whether it's because it's not really, if it shows up on the test, it doesn't mean it's really an indicative of a problem with this individual. So especially if they're using for medicinal purposes, behavioral, mm-hmm. emotional support, things like that. There's some real life viability to using some of these cannabis products. Right. So I think it's a positive thing there. Other thing I thought was interesting is the Bureau of Labor Statistics actually put out a very interesting study. Um, they looked at establishments that are doing drug and alcohol testing for new applicants or current employees, and they broke it down by industry. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned transportation and warehouse definitely the most at almost almost 60%, 55%. Yeah. Um, utilities came in second, about 10 percentage points less than that. And manufacturing was right up there as well at uh, almost 30%. Mm-hmm. So what that shows me is the the need for this type of tool is growing because yeah. more folks are doing these types of testing. You mentioned the growth. We also ran an article on our sister brand, um, Cannabis Equipment News, 
as retail sales projected hit $33 billion by the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that way we're also, in a way, sort of helping support a very gr- growing legal business that's out there. Um, I think those are all positive things. Mm-hmm. No, uh, Anna, it's an interesting device because I think anytime that it comes to testing employees for anything, there's always sometimes that pushback, you mm-hmm. know, like uh, um, overreach, big brother. Um, but when I was talking to uh, Nina French for this article, it's all about, you know, uh, risk assessments and deterrence. Mm-hmm. And if you have, so for some of these, like when you're talking about transportation and logistics, some of these uh, safety critical, you know, you want to test 100% of your workforce on a kind of a regular basis. For other for other industries, maybe 40%. And it's all about, you know, making sure that people know there's a random test that works. And, you know, if they were using on the job, they could kind of get pinged for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that this is a potential tool that could help employers that really don't know what to do in this situation. Right. And I think that that of not knowing what to do phenomenon sort of bleeds over into the the legalization campaigns that happen just in the general populace. Like we've been following the development of this technology for years. Mm-hmm. And I think like this could be a major breakthrough for this industry, especially as it pertains to attempts to legalize marijuana in communities that have been hesitant to do so in the past. Um, I think, you know, the article talks a lot about the application in the workforce, which is critical. Um, but also, like, I think the concept of safe cannabis use has been compared against safe alcohol use um, mm-hmm. for a long time and trying to gauge how much, you know, if you can have it in your system and still operate a vehicle effectively. But up to now, there's really no been no way to test, you know, if somebody had cannabis. Yeah, no, it's I mean, three uh, days ago or whatever yeah. or, you know. Mm hmm. Um, And so if it's impossible to assess whether someone might be considered impaired, then I think it made a lot of people in voting blocks a little bit hesitant to say, like, yes, we agree you can do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. Um, I think people wanted to know, like, if we're legalizing this, can we detect it in a traffic stop? Right. Um, For example, you know, so I don't know. I don't know that there's as many people out there that oppose uh, cannabis use um, compared to those who just oppose like the idea of somebody driving around stoned out of their mind, you know? Yeah, it it does. A lot of it comes down to intoxication. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things I want to mention is that uh, this one from being uh, a standalone story to a developing story, because some competitors have actually reached out um, and challenged the claims that Nina made on regarding whether or not the breathalyzer successfully detects intoxication. Interesting. Because, you know, some of the things, uh, some of the things that, um, or the claims that were made, there are differing studies that are out there. And I have a couple of interviews lined up for next week just to kind of see what some of the other tech out there is doing. Sure. Um, but one of the things that she stressed is that typically if you are using either medicinally or recreationally, if you're done by midnight, you're good to go by your 7 a.m. shift. Mm-hmm. And I just think it's the more information we have out there as to whether or not how you can safely use it. I always think of how uh, people kind of use the rule of thumb, like one beer an hour and you should be all right. Mm-hmm. Sort of, you know, like, Something I mean, it's different like that. for everybody. Yeah, yeah. But, it, you know, uh, that's one of the wild cards with the cannabis industry where, you know, sometimes 10 milligrams is not 10 milligrams, where you have the same 10 milligram chocolate and the next time you have the 10 milligram chocolate and it's just, you know, wildly different experience. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, putting any sort of uh, technology around getting a better handle on how it's affecting people 
is a positive step forward. Well, and I think it's another one of those things. It's it's one of those things that leads to the thing because mm-hmm. it helps improve the standardization mm-hmm. of yeah. a lot of things within this industry that aren't there right now. Right. And it will get there as it becomes more legal, um, as it goes through more regulatory steps, if you will, where yeah. it becomes more standard. Well, and the demand for this type of product is clearly there. Uh, Hound Labs talks about having a wait list that is incredibly long. They're they're running into the same supply chain issues that everybody else is right now. Mm-hmm. They're trying to remain an American manufacturer, but they're looking to all options in terms of contract manufacturing just because the demand is there and they need to get the product off the ground. So in your opinion, David, mm-hmm. there's 14 states where marijuana is not legal in any way, shape, or form. Right. Would, would industries within those states be looking to possibly have this just to catch their employees potentially doing something that's illegal? Or is it still more focused on, I don't want somebody who's been using drugs on my facility? Yeah, no, I think it's not catching people. I think it's that um, making sure that people are of uh, sound minds while operating equipment. You know, possibly you say they're a fork uh, fork truck operator or working a machine that's, you know, you want to make sure. Um, I know that there's been a lot of uh, testing after the fact, uh, after an accident happened. But I think I think that's how it could be used in states where cannabis still remains illegal because, I mean, we're in Wisconsin, we're in a state where it remains illegal. Right. But I have talked to many companies that no longer test their employees for THC because it was just weeding too many people out. Oh, it's too aggressive right now. The workforce can't um, withstand that. Yeah. Well, you think insurance companies would be all over this, too. uh, Oh, yeah. Potentially reducing Mm -hmm. premiums and and things like risks. Absolutely. All right. Our next most popular story. Kmart nears extinction. Dun, dun, dun. On Saturday, April 16th, the Kmart in Avenel, nope, Avenel, Avenel, New Jersey. You know, I try harder because they're smaller communities, but man, at least most of them hear our podcast and all reach out. Sorry, Wenatchee. Sorry, Wenatchee. You have nobody left in Spokane. Okay. Spokane is how you say it. No, <clears throat> Avenel, New Jersey, and it's going to close for good. Once this Kmart shutters, all three, only three stores will remain in the U.S. And it used to have more than 2,000. Kmart used to be huge. You could get a meal, the latest CDs, and back-to-school supplies all in one trip. And if you were lucky, one of them was a blue light special. Kmart's decline has been slow but steady as it struggled to compete on price with Walmart and compete on style with Target. The company filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection in early 20 or yeah, uh, 2002 and announced a plan to mer- or close more than 250 stores. Then hedge fund executive Edward Lampert combined Sears and Kmart and pledged to return them to their former former greatness. The greatness you guys never came. I don't know if you saw that. Never came. Amazon rose and Lampert stripped it for parts. Kmart and Sears anyways. Amazon's just adding on to the colossal behemoth it is. It's a great visual. Yeah. Too many more people can't see. Yeah, this. no, going a lot with the hands, guys. For all the audio out there, uh, the silence is filled with a lot of hand gestures. <laughs> a lot of bear claw type yeah. movements there. <laughs> so Sears filed for Chapter 11 in 2018 and only has a handful of stores left in the U.S. as well. Kmart still operates in Westwood, New Jersey, Bridgehampton, Long Island, and Miami. Jeff, when was the last time you were at a Kmart? Whew, boy, I do not. I don't even know. Yeah. And I think part of that was for whatever reason, like where I grew up, it was a lot more of Shopco, which was mm. more popular like in the Midwest and Western states. Not sure if everybody's heard of them, but 
that's this kind of reminded me of them, not just because I had the wonderful experience with the bird seed in the back of oh, Shopko's yeah. warehouse mm-hmm. when I was in college, <laughs> but also just because I think a lot of these retailers get into this situation where they want to have everything. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think Kmart got really overextended. I know Shopko did. And in their instance, you know, just from a personal experience, they did have everything from consumer electronics to apparel to household goods. And when you went in there, at least when I did, I knew I could find a good deal on consumer electronics. And I waited till like workout gear went on sale. Right. And that's when I would go in there mm-hmm. because to buy some of the other things like laundry detergent or a gallon of milk, it was more expensive. That's where they were trying to compensate for the lower margins on other products. Mm-hmm. Well, when in, consumers have a lot more options, they're going to figure that out. Right. And I think that's where Kmart ran into a lot of issues. They tried to have all of these different offerings and shoot everything for everybody not just in breadth of product, but also depth. Having A, B, and C options from a pricing perspective, that just leads to a nightmare if you don't pull it off. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things, and I saw it again in Shopco, in the last couple of Kmarts that I was in 20 years ago, mm-hmm. they were not nice stores to be in. There oh, was, yeah. They were, they were not pleasant. Yeah. When you go into a Target, which basically does the same thing, mm-hmm. Target stores are bright, mm-hmm. they're clean, they're nice. They're constantly renovating and updating things. So I think there's sort of those two variables that people underappreciate when it comes to retail locations right yep. now is terms of sort of picking your niche yeah, and also understanding that environment and that branding is so important now because there are so many options. And it is so easy just to go on Amazon and order a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you're going to go to the store, it needs to be a little bit more of a pleasant experience. Yeah. Uh, there was a Kmart in my hometown and it was the big deal. Like you went to Kmart for all your uh, general merchandise and you went to pick and save all in the same strip mall. Pick and save was the grocery store. And it was, you know, every Saturday and Sunday, that was the weekend. Uh, families either started at one end of the mall <laughs> and then you <laughs> met each other in the middle at George Webb's yeah. on the way back. Um, but in part talking about uh, the transition, Kmart was that clean, bright uh, shopping experience like a Target but then once uh, the uh, changes in management happened, all of that went out the window. And then it was just more bargains on the shelf and not really a uh, focus on presentation, from my own perspective anyways. Uh, Anna, what were your thoughts? Any nostalgia when it comes to Kmart and uh, how it's slowly – I mean – uh, we're only probably a year out from the uh, special Netflix documentary on the last Kmart. Right, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, if the, if there were some blue lights available on eBay anywhere, um, I Absolutely. would try Absolutely. to find that. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, David's looking right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I know people weren't clicking on this story because they were surprised. I think a lot of people probably were like, there are still Kmarts left. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. And everyone's got a theory as to what Kmart's problem was. Uh, the Harvard Business Review at one point said Kmart had no niche, uh, as Jeff just said. Right. Another theory was that um, Kmart diversified too much into non-core areas over the years. Others blame the store's downfall on being acquired by Sears. And it filed for bankruptcy twice. I don't know. Kmart, like the last time I was in a Kmart, I just, like you said, I remember it feeling like dark, depressing, cheap. Like it was not a nice place to be. Um all of those things probably factored in, but again, I think the overarching pressure of Americans relying less on brick and mortar retail mm-hmm. was, I mean, that just doesn't leave you any room for error, you know? So unfortunately at some point there's just going to be too many of these places and they're going to start getting picked off. Um, Target and Walmart, you know where you are, you know what you're going to get. 
Um, even with places like Dollar General, which I think those are popping up everywhere, mm-hmm. you know where you are, you know what you're going to get yeah. again. So I think that that's probably taken a lot of market share from some of these lower cost retailers, dime store retailers, as, as you might say. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is like Kmart has a website, but you would never know that because they don't advertise themselves well. Oh, and you can buy things on like what Kmart.com. Yeah, you can. <laughs> but, but again, no yeah. one knows about that. Is They've it, never advertised themselves as a digital company. The old shelves. No. <laughs> I know. It just says like deals. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's just, they. you know, unless you're promoting yourself as a sort of robust, unique digital brand, then there's so much competition out there that you can't just like slap up an e-commerce site and expect to transact that way. Mm-hmm. You're essentially going toe to toe with Amazon at that point yeah. or target.com at that point who have the logistics and, you know, to back that up, they can offer you free shipping. They can offer you really fast delivery because they have the network of warehouses to get those products to you ASAP. Mm-hmm. There's nothing notable to bring to the table when you are Kmart. And so I think they just became another victim of that sort of digital one-stop shop and I don't know at this point, even in the last 20 years, what they could have done really to like, they were just so oh, yeah. far behind. Like, how do you catch up to that? It was too late. <clears throat> no, it was the same when, uh, so I grew up by a Kmart and then, uh, when I went to college, I worked at Sears and you saw the same transition happen where Sears was where everyone shopped on Sunday morning. You know, uh, I worked in the marketing department had to have the signage up because people were going to go crazy. And then you just saw how everyone was changing to e-commerce and making changes in the storefront and Sears was just playing catch up and they Mm -hmm. were losing market share very, very quickly. Yeah. And I mean, I thought Sears was one of those that would have had a chance. I remember we ran this story when this guy bought those two brands. Right. Mm -hmm. And I thought if Sears, on just the strength of the Craftsman brand. Yeah. I mean, there was never a brand I think that fell apart more quickly than Mm -hmm. Craftsman because when they started letting everybody carry it, now you can go to an Ace Hardware store, um, you can go to Menard, you can go to some of these other places and find Craftsman tools. It's kind of crazy. And then they sold it and it was like the only valuable thing that they had. And then it was just, that was it. So, and I think Sears did have a chance at that niche. If they could have been sort of like your higher end hardware store, I would have been all over that. Mm -hmm. I'm not thinking about buying, you know, shoes Mm -hmm. at Sears. It's just not going to happen. No, I bought a lot of beige sweatshirts at uh, (laughs) Sears for about $6.99. And to your point, like uh, they did, they failed to evolve. And I actually wanted to talk about Dollar General a little bit more because they've completely taken over rural America. Oh, for sure. And mm-hmm. there's actually been articles out there about how if a Dollar General comes to your town, that means your town is dying. Um, <clears throat> and it's, you know. What? It, it's tr- There's an article it's in The intense. Guardian about how there's the, uh, this entire <clears throat> uh, movement where Dollar General only brings kind of like cheap quality products in a cheaply made store. And it kind of pushes out anything that has any sort of quality out of these smaller wow. uh, smaller towns. There's uh, one in our smaller town up in Crandon, Wisconsin, and that's where a lot of people shop. And the first time we went there as a family, I'm like, you know, this is all garbage, right? And then I bought pots because we were uh, getting uh, new pots for the cottage, and the handle broke before I used it once. Anyway, anyway, yeah. like, uh, so... You're right. Uh, Kmart just struggled with an identity and struggled to keep up with people that were either going cheaper or people that were going hard quality. They just couldn't find their identity. Um, I wanted to point out a quote from Mark Cohen, director of retail studies at Columbia University in New York, because he's a former CEO of Sears in Canada. He says, you know, it didn't have to end this way. 
Trying to compete with Walmart on price was a foolish strategy, and Lampart was criticized for not having a retail background and appearing more interested in stripping off the assets of the two chains for their cash value. He says it's a study in greed, avarice, and incompetence. Mm-hmm. Sears should not uh, should have never gone away. Kmart was in worse shape, but not fatally so, and now they're both gone. And I want to wrap this story up by my most memorable purchasing uh, experience at Kmart. Mm-hmm. So I bought my first boombox there. Yes. With nice. a CD player when I made the switch from tapes to CDs. What was the first CD that I bought? First CD you bought? Yeah. Mm. Um, MC Hammer. Close. That was actually the transition. I was moving away from my hammer tapes. <laughs> so Green Day Dookie. Oh, that was actually like the second one. Yes, I was close. Um, no, the first one, I'm so ashamed to admit it, it was the Men in Black soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> I would never have gotten that. Yeah, no, it was, uh, but that was one of my uh, favorite experiences in Kmart was my friends and I, we would all go to uh, the electronics department and we're just like flipping through the CDs and those huge like plastic cases, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. the anti-theft devices they used to keep them in. Uh, anyway, um, recent, still have the C, still have the CD because I don't let anything go, but, uh, the boombox didn't make it. <clears throat> it can be your outro music. Yeah. The men in black. Yes. Oh man. I was about to start singing it and then remembered we were recording. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <clears throat> Our next most popular story this week. Cops confused over pulling over driverless taxi. On April 1st, the San Francisco Police Department pulled over a Chevy Bolt for not having its headlights on. Much of the much to the officer's surprise, the car was empty. The car was owned by Cruise, a driverless taxi service company. When the police officer began walking back to his car, the taxi moved forward, though like through an intersection and before it pulled over again and then turned on its hazards. Now Cruise says that the car behaved as it was programmed. Cruise is a GM subsidiary that begins or that began the driverless taxi service in San Francisco in February, where users can request rides on an app from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. And I had to like check that twice because it seemed like seemed like weird times. Uh, the company did state, Jeff, that the police department has a hotline to call for these situations. And apparently the officer didn't have the number or read the bumper sticker. I don't know. Well, I don't know. I watched the video. I give these okay. cops a hat, head, hats off. I mean, yeah. I think mm-hmm. they did a good job keeping their cool and just managing the situation. Yeah. I think I would have gotten extremely frustrated. They were legitimately just trying to figure out what was going on here. You would have kicked yeah. the car. I would have shot the tires out or something. I mean, <laughs> shoot I mean, the tires. Well, no. seriously though, like they get in there, nobody's there, and then it pulls away. It was something out of like Night Rider or something. Yeah. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. Kit playing tricks on the cops. Oh yeah. So I give them a lot of credit for the way they handled it, and not escalating the situation because they had a ton of people just around them with cell phones recording oh, yeah. the whole thing. Yeah. I think the um, the bigger question really is why weren't the lights on? Like mm-hmm. that, that would be the bigger concern there. Yeah. Obviously, if you're an autonomous vehicle, the vehicle doesn't need the lights to to navigate, but other people need to see you coming. Yeah. Exactly. So, Talk about pedestrian safety. Um, especially because these vehicles only run from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. No, or excuse 10 me, 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, so yeah, lights are kind of important. Mm-hmm. So a unique situation, probably only in San Francisco. Could you see something like this kind of um, come out? But yeah, I think it, we need to follow up on this and figure out why the lights didn't come on. Mm-hmm. Well, and Anna, we also have to reconcile with the fact that we're going to be driving in our lifetimes in being passed and passing cars with no drivers. 
And at a very basic level, it's going to be weird. It's going to be yeah. weird and scary. Like, I, I don't know. I found the story to be like equal parts amusing and alarming. <laughs> yeah. Um, And the hilarious part is obvious, right? But the alarming part, like, I don't know. It, it seems like it's going to be really challenging for these police to handle this, um, especially when we're still working out the kinks. Like, can a ticket be issued to this company? Like, exactly. There, um, so there wasn't, but shouldn't there have been? Yeah. I like, think it, so. It feels yeah. like this should have maybe been kind of tougher on these well guys. i agree and i think it comes back to just the um the amount of work that needs to be done from a regulatory standpoint and how this is like going to become consistent as a framework around how these vehicles operate and also like accountability and ethical questions that really have not been answered yet like do we as a society assign responsibility when something goes wrong and to whom you know i mean in the event of a failure like whose fault is it are we throwing a software designer in prison? I mean, at some point, does the machine, like, we just decide that we're going to just accept a certain amount of risk that comes yeah. with these machines, and that's just how it is? Um, it just sort of, like, sent me down this wormhole of, like, abstract <laughs> questions. But you get my point. Like, clearly, this is still, these cars are still being adjusted. They're still being modified. You know, you mentioned this earlier, incidentally, the fatality that took place in Arizona. Right. It was an Uber driver or an Uber driverless car that was being tested. It had a backup driver. Uber, incidentally, escaped liability in that case. Mm -hmm. But the backup driver was charged with negligent homicide. Right. Yeah. So say there's an accident with this vehicle that has no headlights on. Mm -hmm. Say the vehicle drives off and hits somebody. Um, it seems like the technology is evolving faster then these questions are being answered. And mm -hmm. that's concerning to me. Well, Jeff if or Anna, if, you, if we are pulled over without our headlights on, we get a ticket. I yeah. mean, at a very simple level. Like, uh, I know that we used the word a few weeks ago, but, I mean, crews should have, like, a company mope that uh, whenever something goes wrong, someone has to be to blame. Because my, what I was thinking, <laughs> yeah, and it's just, you know, when you talk about, like, is it the software designer? There has to be somebody that, you know, is held accountable for these sort of situations. But who wants to be that software designer then? If, like, <clears throat> any time, uh, you know, they're testing these without them being ready no, for no, prime I, time, you know? I understand. I, I, I'm not saying I, I understand. It's, uh, you know, like the chief donut officer. No one, you know. Only the opposite because people want that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. No, there has to be something there. Like, uh, because after I read this story, I just thought, well, why wouldn't these all be drug mules? You know, why not just, <laughs> no, why wouldn't you just exactly use? Exactly where your brain went, huh? Well, or like, I mean, I was thinking like, uh, you know, well, yeah, that's where my brain went. <laughs> uh, well, it went like to all other nefarious things where, uh, you know, Think of when people commit crimes and the driver is charged with the same crime as the one that the person committed. You know, it's uh, it's not that far of a stretch because yeah. when, right. when you look at the fact that when the cops pulled this over, they couldn't get in. They tried to open the doors. They yeah. could not get in. So, I mean, it's not that far fetched. There could have been something in the trunk or, or whatever if the cops can't actually access the vehicle. Yeah. Without calling a number or whatever. Because I think in this case, they called the number and then like a maintenance vehicle came out mm -hmm. to, oh, okay. to deal with it. But there's that. And also to Anna's point, I mean, the thing was stopped and then the cops got out and then it lurched ahead another yeah. hundred feet. Lurched is a strong word. That isn't true. It pulled ahead. Yeah. Another an hundred. Intersection though, right? Yeah. Yeah. So who knows if there are people there now, it's supposed to have cameras and sensors and all the good stuff to detect pedestrians and that wouldn't be an issue. But 
that was an unexpected movement right there. Mm-hmm. If there was somebody around the car, especially in this case, where it was sort of a spectacle because <laughs> cops couldn't talk to anybody in an unmanned vehicle, could have been a huge safety situation. I mean, we talk about the training with EVs and emergency personnel with battery fires. This is going to be a complete learning curve for law enforcement. Yeah. Untraceable autonomous vehicles. Could you imagine? Ghost mm-hmm. vehicles. Ghost, Ghost vehicles. Ghost vehicles. Mm-hmm. Running drugs. Filled with cocaine. <laughs> All right. We took it to that. Okay. <laughs> no, David did. <laughs> David. I mean, they have to mule something. Cannabis is going to be legal. They're not monsters, so it's not heroin. No, anyway. Our most popular story this week. What, what time did that flight get in last night? <laughs> Two. <laughs> Two in the morning. That a boy. Yep. Yep. That's uh, the eyes are just widening. No. Do you want some Mountain Dew? No. <laughs> <laughs> Gas on the fire, Jeff. All right. Our most popular story this week. Suspicious potato turns out to be grenade. Workers at the Mr. Chips French Fry Factory in New Zealand received a bit of a scare last week after an unusual discovery on the conveyor line. Some 100,000 potatoes had just been delivered and were running down the belt when an employee saw what he believed to be a muddy stone. It turned out to be a grenade. A co-worker who had, quote, seen a lot of war movies, confirmed his suspicions, and moved the grenade to a more secure area. He was clearly the most qualified man for the job. <laughs> I've seen Apocalypse Now 13 times. <laughs> You'd have to go back to like John Wayne, Scenes of Iwo Jima to see these grenades. Though. I mean, oh, uh, The bomb squad arrived and determined that it was an, an, an inert grenade or a, quote, mill bomb, which are about 80 years old and date back as far as the First World War. Jeff, what is crazy is that this is not uncommon. Grenades are discovered in potato fields in Europe apparently all the time. And it is, however, unusual to find them in New Zealand. I was waiting to see what you said after you said, this is crazy because, because there's numerous things that were crazy (laughs) with this story. So this is like the pineapple type of grenade, which Mm -hmm. I've never actually seen. Um, Those haven't been around, obviously, for some time. So Mm -hmm. it is crazy there. I think the one thing, if you... On a serious note, if we can, I don't know if there is a serious tone let's for get, this story. Let's get serious. Let's, yeah. um, it does add a lot of credence to a lot of that machine, a lot of the um, machine learning technology, a lot of the machine vision inspection mm-hmm. equipment that we talk about a lot. And a lot of that stuff is what's now being used in unmanned drug mules or, I mean, cars. <laughs> um, so that technology, um, in addition to supporting a number of future technologies, has a obviously a huge quality application right now mm-hmm. and identifying this stuff before it comes into a production area yeah. ideally all those cameras all that different inspection quality equipment quality assurance equipment uh, definitely has a place we talk about that a lot in food manufacturing especially now there you're looking at very small pieces of metal yeah, yeah. not a hand-sized grenade mm-hmm. but uh, usually but not still. a grenade well but. we with the food manufacturing brand i've become accustomed to talking about how many you know uh, bugs and uh, pests are allowed in food. Yeah. You just never think, do you, we need a number for grenades? Did you look this up? I know you did this story, Anna. Did you mm-hmm. look up like the effective range of this particular grenade? Like just say it could have. No, I did not. If you had an idea, what would you guess? Like how far away would you have to be with like be safe if you were uncovered or something like an like that? old ass grenade from this, the, this particular one? Yeah. No clue. Like. Oh, okay. It's like 60 square feet. So it's got a good blast radius too. So if something did happen in a congested production area, this could have been horrific. 
I mean, talk about how I don't need to say what's crazy. You don't have to say this could have been bad. <laughs> <laughs> I did borrow that from you. That yeah. is that is usually your line. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> and what what you wouldn't believe is so, that this grenade. Hmm. Yeah. This is bad. Yeah. Uh, so Anna, according to the Smithsonian Magazine, more than two thousand tons of unexploded munitions are uncovered on German soil every year. Jeez, that is incredible to me. Like still. And before any construction project begins in Germany, the ground must be certified as cleared of unexploded ordnance. I mean, if you're putting up an addition to your house, a guy has to scan it for bombs. David, that's bad. Mm -hmm. And crazy. (laughs) Uh, Anna, I know that you worked on this story, and so uh, you got to learn a lot more about Mr. Chips. But Mr. Chips. I mean, Mr. Chips had a grenade problem. I, do they market it now? I don't know. Maybe now they, with yeah. less grenades. <clears throat> yeah. Always no grenades. Um, <laughs> Low sodium, no grenades. <laughs> no grenades. Uh, the story was sort of fun in the sense that it was a unique find and nobody got hurt again. Right. Yeah. So I thought it might be even more fun to look at things that have slipped through the cracks at food plants and actually made their way or <clears throat> allegedly made mm-hmm. their way into consumer hands. Like, imagine an inert grenade, like, making its way into your, like, bag of russet potatoes and you bring it home. Yeah. Okay, so here are a few that I found that were particularly interesting and gross. Um, In October of 2010, a Michigan couple named Tim and Marty Hoffman discovered a small frog in a defrosted bag of Meyer's store brand mixed vegetables. What? Oh. Mm. Um, That that should have been caught. It should have been the first one either. You got to walk us in a little bit more. That, Maybe oh, she is. I, yeah, I mean, this oh is, god, there's they're not good. None of them are good. Um, <laughs> in 2009, a man named Stephen Force found a small mouse had been smashed and baked into his loaf of bread. Oh, Though come it, on. wait, 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 wait. Let me finish. Though it was missing its tail by the time we discovered it. No, <laughs> no. Yeah, and um, the manufacturer like pled guilty. I think to whatever came up after that, and they were fined like twenty six thousand oh, dollars. Animal cruelty. That's, That's what he went down for. Wow. No. Hey. <laughs> oh shit! They got no teeth. More <laughs> <laughs> tails coming yeah. for you. No. Oh and their God. mice have no tails. Um, in- I mean, so are you insinuating he ate the tail? I don't, I'm not going to say that. I don't know, but where was the tail? Just saying the tail wasn't there yeah. and some of the bread was gone. Oh, right. come on. I've never puked on the podcast. <laughs> All right. Okay. This last one is, is not as bad. Well, it's bad, but uh, in 2008, a 21 year old woman began to eat a frozen macaroni and cheese meal and then bit into something hard. She then realized that two one inch carpentry nails were in the macaroni and she had swallowed a third. Oh, I mean, that's not gross, but that's scary. I know, super scary, it's right? Not at least, I mean, at least the others were organic we could, matter. We can almost use that to segue into the IAN now that ran today. On the uh, the slime robot. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, Go in there and grab stuff. Yeah. Well, you're going to need the slime robot to get the nails out of your mac and cheese in your stomach. Mm-hmm. What? So the moral of the story is that... Um, not only could have been worse at the factory, but it could have, I mean, had it made itself into the food supply... Um, that would have been a pretty terrifying situation that would probably have, no one would have eaten a grenade, but they, they would have filed a lawsuit, I bet. Have either of you guys had uh, in, um, examples of contaminated food like that? I don't think so. I'm trying to remember. I mean, I've like I've had contaminants in my food, but nothing yeah. like 
just like moldy stuff or something like that. Nothing yeah. I had to that a, extent. I had uh, big blue pieces of plastic in my uh, tater tots once. We a, just had a big plastic marker in our popcorn oh. bag, and I emailed Whoa. the company, and they were like, sorry, here's the coupon. Yeah. You, oh, yeah, you get the coupon. to Try us again. And I was like, but I love your popcorn, so I'll totally keep eating it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the most easily appeased whistleblower yeah. ever. Yeah. A bag of any size, I said. <laughs> Thank you. Cheese too. Oh. Well, way to really throw the book at him, Anna. Yeah, yep. <laughs> really living up it's to that. It's not a frog. I mean, if it had been a frog, uh... living up to that hammer nickname you were giving yeah. there. So what was the frog was in frozen vegetables? Yeah. Oh, I'm just So it probably it was a, probably a frozen frog and oh, okay. yeah. looked like I mean, it was green. You know, mm-hmm. you see how like, it got there. Just it should have been caught. Yeah, obviously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is that obvious? It should have been caught. <laughs> yes. a good it should have been caught. <laughs> well, the problem here is they really should have caught that before it got banged. <laughs> <laughs> they never should have let that mouse in the bread. It is really hard to catch a frog. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at least uh, fast. the frog and the mouse, I understand, but like. The nails are troubling. Oh, man. Because those either fell out of a machine somewhere or someone like deliberately put those into the line. Yeah, that's terrifying. Oh, my goodness. Well, hope you're listening around your lunch break. (laughs) So before we move to in case you missed it, we have another word from our sponsor. Oil Eater's household cleaners, industrial cleaners, and industrial equipment are specifically designed to replace dangerous solvents and are used throughout the world. Our safe water-based formula dissolves grease and grime for almost any surface and leaves a fresh, non-chemical scent. Our ultra-concentrated formulas are perfect for light, medium, or heavy cleaning and can be used on shop floors, in parts washers, to clean equipment, and more. VOC compliant, Oil Eater will do an excellent job in a multitude of applications, safely and cost-effectively, while reducing your chemical usage. Safe for the user, safe for the surfaces being cleaned, and safe for the environment. For more information, visit oileater.com or call 800-528-0334. All right, and we're back with In Case You Missed It, the stories that might not have been as popular on the site, but still stand to make a big impact on the industry going forward. Jeff, I'd like to start with you. Uh, What is your In Case You Missed It this week? So one of the things that all these supply chain challenges have really brought to light for me is how, is really the, the size of the role of freight railroads in the U.S. I kind of... We don't really think about it too much because passenger rail is such a hot mess. We've never been able to figure that out or, mm-hmm. or get it going. Yeah. But freight railroading is a huge contributor to the supply chain. We're looking at 140,000 of U.S. 140,000 miles of freight rail. About a third of all exports are hauled via freight, and about 40 percent of long distance volume goes by freight trains. Wow. So basically, with all these supply chain issues, what's happening is a lot of the products that are hauled by freight, which are freight trains, I should say. Agriculture, like grain, mm-hmm. stuff coming out of the ground, like coal, as mm-hmm. well as chemicals and other things of that nature that they haul in huge quantities. All those things are also experiencing the same delays as the regular products we see every day. Mm-hmm. And when you've got a lot of regulators and lawmakers saying, hey, what's going on with freight rail? Why is there such a delay in all these things? We've got farmers showing up at the grain mill. There's no truck. There's no cars mm-hmm. to put their stuff on and haul it. Oh. So they're putting pressure on the railroads. Now, there's basically seven railroads in North America that control everything. Mm-hmm. All of the rail line is actually privately owned as well. Okay. So they share it. It's kind of communal, but it's not controlled by the government. 
So they're really depending on these seven companies to do more, yeah. which means spending more money and hiring more people and all that good stuff. These are companies that have seen record profits in oh, the sure. tens of billions of dollars for the last <clears throat> couple of years. So it's come to a head now because the government's saying, you got to do more. You got to hire people to help us out. Surface Transportation Board Chairman Marty Oberman said that the major freight railroads placed too much emphasis on lowering costs and satisfying shareholders as they eliminated 45,000 jobs over the past six years and cut their workforce, he's quoting, to the bare bones. So they're going to hold a meeting later in April to figure out what should be done and how much more pressure they can put on these freight railroads to hire more people, Mm -hmm. to get more stuff in the cars. The railroad operators are saying, look, we've found a way to be more efficient. We've got bigger trains with more cars hauling more stuff. What else do you want us to do? Mm -hmm. And it's an interesting crossroads between trying to fix a societal problem with private businesses. And how much can the government really do to force these guys to expand their business? Now, a lot of the railroads have said, hey, we can do things better. Mm-hmm. And we're going to try, but they're they're dealing with some of the same hiring issues that everybody else is too. Yeah. So it's an interesting situation that who's going to really who's going to come to the solution first? Are the railroads going to say you're right, regulators? We do need to do more. We're going to maybe trim some of our profits in order to get more stuff on these cars and get it delivered, mm-hmm. or are they going to stand their ground and say, look, we're a business, we're doing the best we can. This is our playground. Mm-hmm. You haven't messed with us for the last hundred years. Don't mess with us now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they're dealing with the same worker shortage as everybody else after cutting 50,000 people. I mean, there's. Well, I'm not going to argue either yeah. side of it, yeah. but if they're a business and they've found a way to be more efficient, oh, they yeah. have a right to do that. Yeah. Now, you would think there's also opportunities with hiring more people, and I think the railroads are open to that, but they need to do it at a scale that allows them to continue to be profitable and efficient as opposed to just throwing a bunch of more people out there, maybe not have them organized the right way. Yeah, because you can have more people there. You still need more cars to get on the tracks to, to load this stuff and, and get it where it needs to go. Yeah, and then have a place for it to go to be unloaded. So it's sort of a little bit of a chicken the egg thing too. Which which do you need to have in place first? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Anna uh, Jeff said seven companies. I was convinced there was only four railroads. Are Are you talking about monopoly? That is my <laughs> <Okay>. only. <laughs> that is my only frame of reference when it comes to railroads. <laughs> you had me worried there for a minute. I was like, oh, no. Yeah, no. I believe it's Reading, Pennsylvania. No, I'm, uh, It's pronounced it, Reading, I think. Oh, well, I thought it was the Reading Railroad. I don't, oh, I don't know. Oh, It's okay. R-E-A-D. Yeah. It's how it's spelled. I know, but there's a Reading, Pennsylvania. Oh, no, no. There's uh, Reading Railroad, like uh, whatever yeah. the railroads were on the, uh, on the mon- Monopoly board. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I- all I know is that there's four. Someone tell us. Yeah. Trivia. Yeah. Right? If this was live, we'd have people coming to our help. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, <laughs> my in case you missed it this week is the Department of Labor finds pay practice abuses uh, with warehouse workers. Uh, this is a story that was by Nolan Bilstein about how the U.S. Department of Labor's Wage and Hour Division investigators recently discovered three San Diego area customs warehouses were violating the Fair Labor Standards Act. Act. The employers, OMG Global Logistics, Atlas Freight Forwarding, and Columbia Export Group were ordered to pay about $2 million combined in minimum and overtime back wages to employees. So, These companies were paying wages as low as $2.50 per hour and also used Mexican affiliates to pay employees, which made it look like they were working in Mexico rather than in the United States. So some workers were making a daily international commute to work at these warehouses, and it 
This whole uh, situation affected about 104 workers at the combined companies. Columbia Export didn't pay minimum wages or overtime specifically. OMG Global Logistics, OMG Freight Forwarders, and the owner, Oscar Meyer, paid below minimum wage paid below minimum wage and denied overtime wages. They also paid workers via an affiliate's payroll in Mexico as direct deposit in Mexican pesos. Atlas used the payroll of a Tijuana-based affiliate to pay workers a flat rate in Mexican pesos for all hours worked. The acting wage and hour division administrator, Jessica Lumen, said, quote, no one should be paid as little as $250 per hour. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Not going to get a lot of, not a lot of pushback there. I, the reason I chose this story was because when it, when it came across uh, my screen, I couldn't believe it. Mm-hmm. I, I, I guess I didn't see how long they had been operating this way, uh, how they had all seemed to have figured out this uh, workaround where they were paying through a Mexican affiliate. But no one deserves to be paid a wage of two fifty an hour. My goodness. Not in the U.S. No, no. I'd agree. It's, uh, yeah, that's, you just wonder where the moral compass is because there's, a, this isn't one guy figuring oh, yeah, out no. a way to do this. <laughs> this is a collective that's, that's gotten behind this as a, quote unquote, best practice. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's, you know why they did it. It's just oh, yeah. hard to reason. It's hard to reason. It's, I mean, when I was 14 working at that pick and save, I made 425 an hour. Yeah. I think that was the minimum wage. I'm going to start tabulating every job that you've referenced having mm-hmm. and then um, see what the total is at some point, because we've worked together for 15 years at least. Yeah. And there's three in there. What did you I feel like you've worked at all these other jobs, like 15 minutes each. Uh, the lowest was three days, but some of them I had longer stints. But yeah, no, the number's high. The number's real high. <laughs> uh, Anna. You're like Kaiser Soze. <laughs> You're like back when I was working at the prison in El Paso. It's well, like you just I, I don't. Okay, so the prison gig wasn't that bad. <laughs> no, <laughs> I had a lot it was of friends. El Paso, in. that was the problem. Yeah, right? no, it was the heat. Um, Anna, what's your in case you missed it this week? Uh, sure. So um, last year, Amazon made some super lofty pledges to make it um, the best place on Earth to work and wow. also the Earth's safest place to work. And since then, serious injuries among Amazon warehouse workers went up 15 percent. Um, and this comes despite the fact that Amazon invested some $300 million into safety programs. Oh, man. I know. So I think it's laudable that Amazon's taking an approach to invest money into safety programs. I do. I mean, that's training, right? Mm-hmm. But I think we all know from seeing stories over and over again about workplace accidents and safety issues that this stuff only goes so far as far as like the culture that supports it. Mm-hmm. Um, and by that, I mean, like Amazon needs to also be sure that it's not making safety take a backseat to these aggressive KPIs um, something I assume may be happening because we've seen it applied on the logistics side of that business mm-hmm. after Amazon faced a ton of backlash in the last year or two about the expectations facing its drivers, yeah. um, how they say they were kind of forced to speed. Um, yeah. They yeah. were driving aggressively, not taking breaks um, just to achieve these requirements um, and, and expectations that Amazon had of their delivery rates. So Amazon CEO Andy Jassy has since said that the company is looking internally and asking employees to describe their pain points so they can continue to make improvements in safety. Mm. Though, again, this has to be top-down. And for Amazon, top-down is corporate, but it's also like warehouse-to-warehouse because Mm -hmm. um, it's not just 
it can't just come from a CEO that you may never share a room with ever in your life. You may, I mean, it's a huge company, right? Right. Some people, for them, it's their day-to-day work culture just in that individual building. Mm-hmm. Amazon needs to get a handle on that, and I don't think they do. What is the... Uh What's the old box that used to be on the outside of the uh, manager's office? Oh, the complaint box yeah. or whatever, the <clears throat> feedback box. Suggestion box. Yeah, suggestion suggest- box. Yeah, yeah, the anonymous suggestion box. That's uh, Sorry, when you were talking about how there needs to be more communication, I just see these workers walking up to the manager and him being like, oh, all right, yeah. at least it's not two fifty an hour. Uh, Anna, this article had some incredible stats, like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, talking about just how, what percentage of the in- injuries are coming from people employed by Amazon. Uh, I was, I was frankly surprised by it. Uh, Jeff, how about yourself? Well, I think it sort of proves some of those people who think Jeff Bezos is a robot because his response or his, his focus on safety is more robotics, Mm -hmm. more Mm -hmm. technology, as opposed to addressing, like you were saying, some of the other more cultural issues, which is overwork, making sure people are doing things the right way in a more ergonomic fashion, maybe redesigning the warehouses a little bit to support those types of things, Mm -hmm. which is what we've seen from companies much, much smaller than Amazon. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting too that the serious injury rates were so much higher at automated warehouses than the ones that were not. That's what the report said. 30% higher, I think, um, serious injury rates at robotics intensive warehouses, which is scary to think about. Well, and it's crazy. It's crazy that a third of US warehouse workers are employed by Amazon. Yeah. That is just crazy. But then they still, Amazon still accounts for 50% of the injuries. I mean, that's just... I mean, I'm trying to wrap my head around those numbers. And when I joke that it's a juggernaut, then you're like, no, really, they're huge. Just massive. They're huge. Yeah. Yeah. But they're going to be Earth's safest place to work because they're going to move heavy industry to space. (laughs) (laughs) And they're going to be the moon's most dangerous. That's right. It's reality. Safest on the Earth, most dangerous on the moon. (laughs) All right. Well, let's move on to our final thoughts this week. Anna. What's your final thought? Oh, no, I was okay, I hoping you wouldn't come to me first. No, that's fine. I can I can start with my final thought, uh, mostly because, as Jeff mentioned earlier, like I'm just, I'm at the end here. You You're know? on your yeah, last. No, we're on fumes. Yeah. No, uh, <clears throat> it was great to get out traveling again. I was at the uh, trade show out in Anaheim, which is, you know, design and manufacturing, ATX Robotics, uh, medical design and manufacturing, CanPAC. Uh, I wish they would just give it one name because- it's hard to know which part of it it's, you're in, but it's not DNM West or. Well, no, it used to be like uh, DNM West is part of it. It's okay. like one of the. Oh, six that's icons. just part of. Okay, yeah. I see. All right. Um, but it was a great time. Uh, people were excited to be there. I heard that there were, you know, less people but higher quality leads, better than last year's show. Um, you know, some of the frills were gone. Like, no frills, huh? Like carpet. Was gone from oh. the trade show. Like, uh, you know, some of the check-in uh, process was a little bit, you know, we're getting through it. Were oh. people still bringing their trash keys? Did you get a stress ball or anything? I So <laughs> I actually, I talked to this. Uh, I talked to um, Jen Hurst about this. Uh, she's the uh, president of Master Control, a software company, mm-hmm. about how I never had a tchotchke game mm-hmm. until I had kids. You know, I never even looked at him. Actually, we used to have a coworker who shall remain unnamed. But if you remember, she brought a separate bag yes. behind her just for tchotchkes. It was yes. a wheeled suitcase. And Ugh. she would walk past every booth and just boom, in the bag, every tchotchke. And that's you now? That is not me. I, you know, was modest. I went away. I came away with like a yo-yo, two robots, courtesy of Master Control. And um, what was the uh, the fourth one? 
Oh, su- uh, sunglasses. So just a fanny pack then. Yeah, uh, that's all. You, that's all I needed. But I still like. And he has that anyway. Yeah, exactly. Might <laughs> as well stuff it full of robots. No. <laughs> um, no, but it was it was a great time. Uh, uh, saw some great people <clears throat> like uh, the guys from SDPSI. Um, Cosina got to catch up with a lot of people that I just haven't seen outside of Zoom in a long time, mm-hmm. and uh, that was really nice. So, just good to get out there. But traveling is still the same. Airlines. I did. Oh, we joked about it the other day, but I did see that I was on a seven thirty seven out there. Like they had the little uh, emergency procedures card. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that's not good. <laughs> but uh, it was. It was. It was all good. The uh, <laughs> only thing, not the only, but one of many things that I could have changed was uh, I should have broken in the mask. You know, oh, I that's in, a long day of it. Yeah. yeah, I went in with the fresh mask on a uh, four hour plane ride and, you know, the ears were seeping from the yeah. back at the end. Oh. Yeah, seeping. Yeah. But uh, and the only other final thought I had is that uh, today's my son Dez's birthday. So happy birthday. Happy Dez. birthday, Dez. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. We're going to spoil you so much. I'm sorry. And you're a bad person later in life. No. <laughs> Why do I have to learn? Everything was always handed to me. That's my that's on me. Um, Anna, what's your final thought? Yeah, so, well, I'm glad that you're back. We're glad that you're back. It was a skeleton crew this week. And I would also like to say, Andy Zoll, please come back from vacation. (laughs) (laughs) We need you to come back, bud. It was so quiet. We're dying over here. (laughs) Right? It was so quiet. Like, uh, we even noticed that the quiet one was gone. I know. Yeah. Um, No, I I mean, where did Sal go again? Florida. 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 So he's going to come back with just, I don't know. Super tan. He's <laughs> tan cornrows. Yeah, yeah. The whole thing. <laughs> the beaded hair. Uh, no. He's going to be like, and then I went to the beach and there was sand everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and butting right up to it. Water. <laughs> and it just coming in and going out and coming in. I couldn't believe it. First it's up to my ankles and my knees. Ridiculous. I was freezing. <laughs> but no, really come back. Uh Jeff, what's your final thought? So I'm looking forward to Monday. Going to do something I haven't done in about four years, which mm. is go to a Milwaukee Brewers baseball game. Ooh, yeah. yeah. Man, looking forward to that mm-hmm. very much. Also, you're talking about stuff coming back from trade shows. I think for at some point, both of my daughter or two of my daughters must have had like a stack like three inch, four inches high of just like notebooks that you would get yeah. whenever you went to the press things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then they filled them up with all sorts of interesting artwork. Oh, yeah. So, well, uh, actually, talking about the tchotchkes, they're, they're a lot less uh, because companies that actually only the companies without tchotchkes were saying that uh, people don't do it anymore because they're only sending serious buyers. And serious buyers don't want tchotchkes. And I'm just like, sorry, I'm going to take a yo-yo. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Uh, Jeff. Trivia. Trivia. So last week, we were looking at Doing, according to the Army's matrix here that they had figured out, doing what they classified as easy work in temperatures of, <laughs> not the sun. Not the sun. Not the sun. Not oh, working on no. the sun. Of 85 to 88 degrees Fahrenheit. Mm-hmm. If you're doing that for an hour, how much water should you drink and how much rest per 60 minutes should you take? Well, the Army says you don't need any rest. Mm-hmm. If you're doing easy work at that temperature, no rest, and you should have about three quarters of a quart of water. Mm. So we did have two people get it correctly. Really? Oh. So good work to them. They either figured out some stuff on Google or they just knew some things from Boy Scout. Either way, interesting. Good yeah. work to them. So great to get out some shirts and hats. You got to um, remember these are kids, in. Anna. These are, I mean, you know, these are y- younger people that are doing these tasks in this weather. You know, it's not us that are like 
Okay, we need breaks. We, yeah, it's nap time. Breaks and water. <laughs> Every hour, nap time. Yeah. Water is still important regardless of age. I can't believe how tired I get just standing outside making sure people don't run into traffic. Wow. Exhausting. All right. Mm-hmm. Way to keep them out of traffic. Well, I mean. David's asleep right now. Bare minimum. <laughs> Soon. All right, so then we'll get right to the new trivia question. Let's get yes. to it. Borrowing from Anna's theme with the potato hand grenade story. Whoa. <laughs> That's my Looking theme. at the standard. For throwing a hand grenade, which mm-hmm. is something everybody has to do to get out of basic training. You have to throw a live hand grenade. Oh mm. my God, really? Oh yeah. Oh, okay. It sounds kind of cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Once you, th- it is Alex. Yeah. It's awesome. Um. So once you throw it, what is the standard of time after you let go of the grenade to get down slash seek cover? In other words, don't do like I did where I threw it and I wanted to see it blow up and the drill sergeant hits me upside the head and said, get down, John Wayne. <laughs> According to the Now, you want to get down before this, but what is the Army standard, the maximum amount of time before you, after releasing the grenade, need to seek cover? Hmm. Well, I've seen a lot of war movies. So what do you so what every, feel? Every team's I'm not going to tell you if you're right, but what do you think? What is your guess? Three seconds. Okay. Like a three count. Okay. Uh, five. Okay. We shall see. Yeah. See how you stack up against the yeah, the, the geniuses on this panel. Who, do, yeah. Do you practice throwing potatoes? Because there's a specific way no. you're supposed to throw a grenade, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's not like throwing a baseball. You should not throw. It's more like a um, sort of a combination between a football and a lob is mm-hmm. the best way to do it. And yes, you do. You have to actually qualify with hand grenades, which is throwing at a bunch of separate targets. Oh. Um, so you do have practice with dummy grenades, which are the same thing. Oh. They're just not as potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> they make a pop. They do have a fuse in them, but it's not yeah. like dangerous. Obviously. Is it a hot potato or is <laughs> oh, it? Oh, yeah. Who was the? You do not want to have to throw a hot grenade. Who was the commenter on the site uh, for the potato story that just left? Now, that's one hot potato. It's probably I, Nolan. <laughs> just dropping gems as an anonymous source. I'm not going to be able to find it, but uh, you know who you are. And thank you for everything you do in this world. All right. So, get back to Jeff on the trivia. I'm pretty sure it's three seconds. But I haven't seen a lot of good war movies. <laughs> All right. Uh, anything else before we get out of here, guys? <laughs> Take us you. out, David. All right. All right. Before we get out of here, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. To email the podcast. You can reach any of us at Jeff, Anna, or David at IEN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. Finally, if you want to make sure you get the podcast to your inbox first, uh, make sure to subscribe to our daily and weekly newsletters. All right. For Jeff and Anna, I'm David Manti. This is the Today in Manufacturing podcast, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast.